Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland. In this episode, we have a chat with Sue Lawrence about her new historical novel, The Green Lady. Set in the 16th century, it follows the lives of many women throughout this period in Scotland. From Lilius Drummond, the Green Lady herself, first wife to Alexander Seton, a Scottish earl who was one of King James I's and VI's most trusted aides, and his following wives, Grizel Leslie and Margaret Hay. Their home is Fivey Castle, a huge castle that still stands today, but the book stretches much further afield, as Alexander Seton's aunt is Marie Seton, Mary Queen of Scots' most loyal lady-in-waiting. The book casts a light on women in the 16th century and the ruthless nature of power and ambition, as well as my favourite, ghosties. So, let's go back to the 16th century. Hi Sue, thank you so much for joining us today to chat about your new book, The Green Lady. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what brought you to be writing Scottish historical fiction? Yeah, I'm Sue Lawrence and I'm probably better known or have been over the years for my food writing. And I've done quite a lot of cookbooks now, about 19 or 20. And I just decided about 10 years ago that because I love history and research so much, I wanted to start writing, um, well, first of all, fiction. And then when I was thinking fiction, I thought, could it be contemporary? And I thought, no, I love the past so much and finding out about what actually happened. But I decided just to start down the historical novel route. All my novels, apart from one, the last one, have got a sort of dual narrative, which means there's a contemporary strand as well as the old story, because I just find it's a kind of interesting technique to use to impart perhaps a little bit more information into the, the old story. But this one is in the late 16th century and early 17th century, and then the, the contemporary story is in the 1980s. This is The Green Lady, and this is the one that I'm very excited about. Yes, and it's fantastic. I spent the weekend reading it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Being Great. pulled back into the 16th century was wonderful. I think, <laughs> yeah, especially with the line of research that we do, it's often very like fact-heavy and dense. And it was really nice to be able to read The Green Lady and sort of get pulled into the world fully and have all the characters sort of painted around us. The book is set at Fivey Castle, which, interestingly, we've actually done a segment on as well. Wow. Yeah, so it's a really fantastic big castle in the northeast of Scotland. It's very and beautiful, very beautiful. It's, it's stunning, it really is. Mm. And so what drew you to the northeast of Scotland? What drew you to Fivey Castle? It was actually a chance sort of visit before first lockdown to Holyrood Palace, first of all. And I saw, among all the other beautiful things, I saw a necklace, earrings and a brooch, which, as you know, in the, in the novel is called the parure. Uh, French word, and it's it was given by Mary Queen of Scots to her most loyal lady-in-waiting, Marie Seaton. And then I started wondering, you know, all about Marie Seaton and the four Marys, her ladies-in-waiting, and found out that Marie Seaton's nephew, Alexander Seaton, bought Fivey Castle, which I'd heard about because I was interested in the ghost story side of it as well. Um, he bought that in 1596. And so I started thinking, oh, Fivey Castle, that sounds interesting. I was very lucky. I managed to get into the National Library of Scotland for about three days before a big lockdown. And from very then jealous. on, it was, yeah, exactly. It was, um, you know, a lot of the stuff was actually just online. 
and phoning people and speaking to people. But I'd already done a lot of research in those solid three days. I think I must have realized that something was about to happen. But of course, I couldn't visit it initially. So I started on the story with just the history, but I needed to get there and, and sort of feel it. So as we all know, that was March 2020. Come September, as you know, we had that blip and we were able to move away from our homes. And so I actually managed to go up to Fivey Castle and had a tour, which was so, so special. Because by that stage, I was maybe halfway through the book, but there was so much I needed to fill in uh, mm -hmm. to sort of immerse myself in the 16th century. And as you know, Fivey Castle goes from, you know, say the 1300s right through and with every century, a new part has been added. And so I find it fascinating that Alexander Stephen was probably the one that added most to it inside that massive, big, beautiful wheel stair that they have there. And so that combined with the research and I thought, yep, I'm off. I kind of vaguely know what I'm doing now. Oh, that's fantastic. I think I visited Fivey around that time as well, but unfortunately it was closed when we were there. It was officially closed when I was there, but the National Trust of Scotland very kindly allowed me a private visit, socially distanced. Uh, so I was very, very lucky indeed. It was just the grounds were open at the time. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I wish yeah. I'd been there in the same to tag along. So is, is that common when you're writing your historical novels, not just The Green Lady, that you do go and visit the places that you're writing about? Absolutely. Essential. I mean, the last one, which was called The Unreliable Death of Lady Grange, she ends up in St Kilda. And of course, the plan was always, yep, go to St Kilda. But again, it wasn't that it was locked down. I just never got round to it. So I had to rely on other people and photograph and all sorts of things, but it's never quite the same. So this is why Fivey Castle for me, it was such a special treat visiting it. And also Fivey Church, as you know, um, there's quite a lot in the novel about that. And I visited it, but only from the outside because it was shut in, in lockdown even then in September. And so I'm going up actually to do an event in, in the actual church, which is rather lovely. Hopefully I can see that everything inside the church is as I wrote it. Because again, it was all photographs and people telling me things. Uh, it's very difficult when, when you haven't visited, but I think you did a fantastic job of painting a picture, at least, of what well, it thank you. Like. <laughs> yeah. But that's brilliant. Yes, and with the perure that you mentioned throughout the book, I did Google that, and it is fantastic looking. It's really wonderful. Were there any other objects or things that you found specific inspiration in when you were writing the book? Well, just having had that visit to Fivey and looking around all those amazing rooms, you know, you go up the staircase and there you are in the Douglas room where some people say Alexander Seaton kept his first wife, Lilius, to starve her to death. And then you're down in the charter room and that's where there's meant to be a secret chamber, which has been locked for centuries, apparently, or certainly many, many years. And it says that the family are always very worried to try to get into the room because it's a curse. And the curse has meant that whoever the layered at the time will die and his wife will become blind. And you sort of think, well, that's ridiculous. But in fact, there have been stories that layers of the past have died soon afterwards. And the wife has say, not become blind, but suddenly had cataracts or suddenly something that we now know, you know, that there's a cure to. So that's why in the story, as you know, Jenny, my heroine in the contemporary story goes down to the chamber and finds something that's kind of a theme throughout another ring, a ruby ring that's given by American Scots to Marie Seaton, who then gives it to Lilius Drummond, who then does she or doesn't she 
starve to death. I don't know. Do we give the plot away? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really interesting. So with the setting as well, and then the people, the characters that you fill the book with, you mentioned Marie Seaton, who's definitely a thread throughout the whole story. What drew you to her and what made you really want to dig into her story? I think Marie Seaton, out of all the four Marys, which were her childhood friends and then became her ladies-in-waiting, she's the only one that didn't marry. She's the only one, therefore, who stayed with Mary through most of her imprisonment. She certainly was with her in Lochleven Castle when she was imprisoned before she then went down south to all the castles down south, Sheffield and Tutbury and, and eventually Fotheringham, where, where she was executed. And Marie Seaton was also unusually as tall as Mary Queen of Scots because Mary Queen of Scots was very tall. Some say over six foot, which is incredible for that time of the 16th century. And so because of that, she was able to, to wear in all her dresses. And Mary, the, the Queen, would have said, yes, that looks nice. I'll try that on. And finally, she was also, which is quite interesting, her hairdresser, because she was very, very good at, at coiffing hair. So she was able to look after the Queen's beautiful hair. And even nowadays, you know, we all tell things to our hairdresser that you tell nobody else. And so I like to think they had this bond as well. The secrets you can tell when you're in the hairdresser's chair. I like to think that happened between the Queen and her lady-in-waiting. I personally find the hairdressers very awkward, but I think that's just me. <laughs> 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 and so we have a whole range of women characters in the book, which is also brilliant. I think you go out of your way to focus on the women of the past. And what's quite interesting is how much do we actually know about these women and how much is you... Like you say, hoping that they had this wonderful connection. How do you build fact and fiction into a character? All the wives of Alexander Seaton existed and their dates of birth are correct, their names, their families, the number of children they had as well was absolutely, that is factual from history. How do you build a character in fiction? So I just had to give them characters based on, I suppose, what I'd read about, uh, first of all, Lilius, the first wife, because she became the Green Lady, this ghostly figure. So, you know, she was, I think, a slightly tragic figure. Then the second wife, Grisel, Grisel Leslie, she was the one that sort of um, usurped her place and uh, that Alexander Stephen fell in love with. And by the way, all the time, he's becoming older and older middle age and he's an old man by the time he marries his third wife and the wives are always about 15 16 17 it was normal at the time now we think that's absolutely awful and so in a way it was i sort of built their characters around their roles within my plot and the only one i actually saw a picture of was the third wife margaret hay margaret seaton because there's a beautiful portrait of her at fivey castle in the douglas room and she looks quite sort of staid, but she's got a real twinkle in her eye. And that's what made me think, I think she is the only one that could actually get the better of Alexander Stephen, who I think treated his wives appallingly because all he ever wanted was male heirs to carry on the succession. And um, he treated his wives accordingly. Yeah, the book, the time of it, the 16th century is very interesting time for women all over the world, but also in Scotland and their dynamic with power. And that really comes out in the book. 
I think one of the main themes is servitude in a way, you know, uh, serving God, serving your queen or king, serving and in place of the wife, serving your husband. And the power dynamic that that creates was really interesting to watch you explore it. How do you think that women in the 16th century gained power and control of their own lives when they're constantly serving someone else? With great difficulty, because they had no agency, they had no rights, unless they were a queen, for example. Mary Queen of Scots, she had rights, she had power. But even at that, you know, John Knox was still, you know, absolutely lambasting her and criticising her. I'm not sure he would have done that had he been a man. So in order to get any sort of rights, they had to, there's no way they could ever be equal of their their husband, but they could try by having a male heir. And that's why um, the two wives who had male heirs, they sort of, let's say, grew in his estimation. And so he thought, yep, I'll carry on with these wives. This is looking good. And then certainly things happened along the way without giving away too much of the plot. So it was difficult and it didn't matter whether you were, let's say, a maid in the castle or a farm worker or a countess and a lady, you still had no rights yourself. You had no rights to property, you had no rights to your children. You know, if uh, the husband decided to get rid of you and the children were always his, not that good a time to live, I don't think, for a woman. No, it wasn't. But I do think, obviously, we've come very far. <laughs> but even in your writing of the book over the storyline of the 16th century, we do see a development through the waves. And then obviously with your character in the 1980s as well. Yes. Progress. <laughs> <laughs> Progress, yay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you chose to focus on the waves. Do you find yourself naturally drawn to women characters or are you are you searching for them when you're when you're writing? I'm definitely searching for them. Um, there's so many stories of that are not have not yet been told of women in the past in Scotland, and there's so many stories of men that have been told, and of course, equally interesting. Where you know men and women equally interesting, but I just find it's the stories of the women that haven't been told, and so in a way, I want to give them a voice, um, something that they might say. Actually, the third wife disobeys her husband and decides to go off riding, even though she's pregnant. She just does that, and I wanted her to do that and be a bit more bold. Whereas the other ones were maybe slightly more timid and were just under his authority. So I I think it's very challenging, very challenging. We have that issue as well when we are writing the podcast. So many of the stories and things that we dig up from the past are male orientated. But we always try, if there's like uh, some folklore, we'll always try and change the main character to a woman or or give the wife a name rather than her just being referred to as the wife. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Look at all the statues, you know, along in Edinburgh, wherever you live, they're all men. Unless you're a queen, Queen Victoria has quite a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only a few steps away from there, so give me me a couple (laughs) decades. (laughs) (laughs) So when you are researching for these books, obviously you couldn't go to a lot of places, but were there any really big breakthrough moments where you thought, aha, I really got this character down or or this plot point down? Well, um, breakthrough-wise, in a way, was uh, for me almost towards the end when I was continuing to find out what happened to this parure, the beautiful necklace and all the rest of it. Because I'd seen some of it in Holyrood Palace and it's still there to be seen. So I got in touch with Dr. Anna Groundwater, who's the um, brilliant National Museum of Scotland doctor, archivist. And she was able to tell me that the other part of the Peru, because it was split up, is now on loan at National Museum Scotland. 
So um, she was able to show me pictures of it. And again, we weren't able to meet, but all the story about it. And what I found absolutely fascinating was that in my story, but this was purely made up by this stage, Megan Scotts had given the parure to Marie Seaton. That is true. In my story, she then gives it to Lilius, the first wife of Alexander Seaton. That's in the story. Then years and years and years later, and this is what happened in fact, which was like a revelation, I find out that the parure was in the possession of another Lilius, who was Countess of Bathurst, and this is in the 19th century. She ended up giving it to another Queen Mary, wife of George V in the 1935 coronation. The, when I say 19th century, that was when it was given to this Lilius's family. But this Lilius gave it to Queen Mary in 1935, which meant that it was then in the royal collection, which is why I saw it at Holyrood. So when I saw the names, the Lilius, it's not a common name, is it? Giving it back to a queen, it was like everything coming full circle. But the fact that I'd invented that was even more extraordinary, I thought. Very wonderfully circular. Yes. And I think, yeah, because it has, it actually has little snakes on it, doesn't it? That it does. could almost be seen as like the little, is it Uruboss? The little snake eating itself circle. <laughs> That's right. They're called snake links. And there's a lot of them all around in both the one at Holyrood and the one at National Museum of Scotland. So it's, it's extraordinary. Oh, it's, it's so sad that they're so close together, but they're not united. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But, you know, the Royal Collection owns those ones and the National Museum has it on loan, the, the longer one. But but you can see both when you're in Edinburgh now. It's brilliant. Oh, I think I'm definitely yeah. going to check that out next time yeah. I'm down. Yeah. So you're writing The Green Lady. And am I right in thinking you had one published just beforehand as well? So it's quite quick succession. Just for lockdown, that was the, yes, that was the unreliable death of Lady Grange. And that was published, I think, about three weeks before official lockdown. So even the launch, we couldn't do anything because everyone was starting to panic at that stage. So, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's merrily going, doing very well at the moment. So that's great. Yeah. Are you, are you constantly writing then? Yes, I'm about halfway through the next one, but I've actually gone back to early 16th century. And again, uh, research-wise, it's a little bit more difficult, actually. But again, I'm loving doing it. And some of it takes place on Mull. And uh, again, you know, we're able to travel now, so I've been there. Some of it takes place on Isla, which I know very well. So um, there's a, a loads of research. Um, so yeah, absolutely loving that. You're writing very quickly. Are there any big obstacles that you've been hitting with these with your process? Or are you in the flow right now with it? Yeah, I mean, now, you know, things are easier. I mean, the biggest obstacle about the whole process of the writing The Green Lady was lockdown because you just couldn't go very far. And also a lot of fellow writers felt, you know, in a way people would go, ah, oh, fantastic, lockdown, great time to write. But I certainly was like a blank. You know, I just couldn't get down to things. It was, it was so odd for all of us. It was very challenging. So it took a little bit of time and then suddenly... You know, I, f I thought, yep, use this time. Get on with it. <laughs> Stop doing yoga and playing the piano. Sit down and write. <laughs> I mean, all three of those things sound great. <laughs> <laughs> As you said at the very beginning, one of the weirdest or the biggest pulls of Fivey Castle uh, is the ghost. Yes. 
And I know it, when I went with my parents in lockdown, my mum is big into ghosts and we saw someone who worked there outside and my mum runs over to this groundskeeper and she was like, have you ever seen this ghost? <laughs> this poor man was like, I'm literally tending to this garden. <laughs> like, and it's, it is really bizarre how much the ghost is, of the Green Lady has become not just associated with, with Fivey Castle, but also like an embodiment of it. What do you think the pool of a good ghost story is? Yeah, well, just thinking of your mum, there was also an article during lockdown in one of the papers, I think it was the Courier, the Press and Journal, speaking to the only people, I think it, he was the groundkeeper and his family who carried on living in the castle. I don't know if you read this. And sometimes he would, you know, there'd be an alarm going off in the middle of the night and he'd have to go along in the pitch black with his torch in the middle of the night from his, you know, little lodge house into the castle and he said it was quite spooky you know even though he doesn't believe in all that stuff and it would end up just being maybe uh, a window that wasn't properly locked or something but then you think but hang on that was locked so who knows if any of this is true i think the main thing is about a ghost story it's got to continue to to make you a little bit uh chill a sort of tingle run through your body but it's got to be i think it's, it's kind of got to be um not, not so much relatable but you've got to believe it i think and the Green Lady, I think, is a believable story. When you go up to the Seaton bedroom, and that's where she was first meant to be, and um, she was meant to be outside the window on the first night of her husband's next wife, when, and she was the ghost there haunting them on their first, on their wedding night. And I like to think that, yeah, good honour for doing that. <laughs> and what's interesting is there are actually lots of Green Lady ghosts dotted all over Scotland. And there does seem to be some strange connection between a woman who doesn't pass happily into the afterlife because she's been treated horribly in the present, usually by a husband or family members. Yes. And it, yeah, I think it just goes to show the power of that, even if the ghost isn't real. In some way, the memory of this trauma that this woman has faced is perpetuating through the centuries to the point where we're writing about her in books, we're going up to groundskeepers and asking them if they've seen a ghost. Exactly, yes, yes, because we, we kind of want somebody to have actually seen it. And that's why in the story, in my book, uh, there is somebody, an older person, who has definitely seen it, but then we think, has she got dementia? So, you know, that's what people might think, oh, you're just mad if you think you see a ghost. but. Maybe they're not. Maybe there is a presence somehow. Who knows? Have you ever seen a ghost? I haven't, but I have, I think, heard one because um, I talk about it at the end of the book. There was a, a BBC Radio 4 production in one of the castles in Ireland, the most haunted castle in Ireland. And I remember I was sitting in a car park in, in Edinburgh and I couldn't get out of the car because I just heard the most spooky thing because over the live recording, came a voice and it said well what i heard was i died and apparently that the people who were doing the recording live in the castle had no idea this wasn't in their headphones it came over when we were all listening to it and so many people wrote in to say why would why would you do that we know it's spooky and they said we have absolutely not got a clue why that came up and they thought it was evp which is electronic voice phenomena. Um, or some people said, oh, they probably recorded, it was a, a bit of time ago, so it could have been re-recording over an old tape or whatever. 
But I just remember the sort of the, the cold shiver that went all through me when I heard that voice. It was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, that is. That's interesting to have a ghost on the airwaves. You know, it's yes. like, all right, now's my moment. Yes. <laughs> Either that or just like an intern who's like, today's my last day. I'm just going to Exactly, quickly. exactly. But the voice was like nothing else. It was sort of, it was a very low, a deep, crackly one. It was very odd. It really was quite something. Yeah, well, I definitely, I need to go back to 5A and go into the castle and... Yes. I, I don't know, like hide behind curtains and try and... <laughs> I think you're going to be there in the dark. I think you have to be there in the dark. And, and the other thing about ghosts is, um, I think it has to affect all the senses. I mean, I was talking about, obviously, I listen to it. Some people see them, but also, as you know, in the book, I talk about the smell of roses, which always happens whenever she comes into a room. And that's why we've got a, a lovely rose on the cover of the book with the green lady's beautiful dress. And that's because you know, in the history books about if you believe in the ghost, that's what the smell was. But also I like to think that she, she had great joy um, picking roses and making rose water. Because rose water was very commonly used um, in the past to sort of freshen, you know, make everything fresh because everybody probably smelled so often in those days without baths. And so I like to think that that was a, a lovely thing about her, uh, that she also smelled delightful. It was really wonderful reading a historical novel. Like I said, I haven't had the chance to read many recently. Do you enjoy reading them yourself? Always have done. When I was younger, probably a teenager, I used to read Jean Plady. I don't know if you can remember those. I'm sure some listeners will. And then now I actually love Hilary Mantel. A lot of people go, oh, it's too big and weighty, but you've got to get into it. You've really got to sort of get into it. And you're just immersed in that period in the 16th century as well. But also Maggie O'Farrell, who I, I love as, as a novelist, has just gone into with her Hamnet, which again, the 16th century, and apparently she, she's got a new one coming out this year, and it's all about Renaissance Florence. So I can't wait for that one. And finally, another really real favorite is Kate Moss, M-O-S-S-E, who um, writes the longer dot trilogies or however many there are. And that's sometimes earlier, but again, sometimes 16th century. Something about that century I really love, obviously. And you learn so much just reading about it, but you know all the research that all these people have done. It's just massive. And then you've got to whittle it all down and somehow just not in a way show off that, oh, I know that they wouldn't have had that dress on or they wouldn't have eaten or drunk that. Just let it flow naturally into the plot. I think that's the trick and that's what every historical novelist is aspiring to. Right, I'll check some of them out. I can see Annie nodding away, being like, yes. yep, yep, yep. <laughs> big fan, big fan. <laughs> yeah. So in our podcast, we always try and bring in some folklore and some mythology. And I think, did I read that you grew up in Dundee? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Do you remember any local folklore or mythology from when you were growing up that sort of ties you to home? Yeah, well, I say I grew, I grew up in Dundee. My entire family is from Dundee. I was, I was born there, went back there to university, but I was actually brought up in, in Edinburgh. Dundee's got a lot of very old tales. And um, I mean, there's one in Dundee that's just fascinating. My parents, who were born in the 1920s, remember something called a dressed herring. And that was, um, <laughs> it was a very bizarre thing. It was an actual herring which had a very, very, very strong cure. So it was stiff from the cure. And they actually dressed them in doily hats and <laughs> crepe paper dresses, like Victorian, like Victorian, they were like Victorian ladies. They dressed them up. I was going to make a joke about having a top hat on, but they actually did have hats on. 
the, the, and they were dressed like Victorian ladies. And the thing about them was that the, um, my parents remember they used to be brought, it was a New Year tradition and people would make them and take them around. No idea where it came from, apart from the fact that, you know, it, it was a good luck charm and they would hang them on the back of the door all year long to bring luck. And of course you think, didn't they stink? But they'd been cured and salted so heavily that in a way the smell had gone. But they just looked so funny. These, you see the little fish eyes, but wearing lovely little hats and things, and brightly colored crepe paper and fringes and ribbons and bows. Absolutely bonkers. And Arbroath, so from Arbroath down to Dundee, that's where you used to find the dress herring. And my parents can remember that up until about the 60s as well. So it went, it did go on, yeah. Well, I think we got to bring back the dressed herring. I feel yes. like it needs a revival, a moment. Yes. This is exciting, and now I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes Googling fish in costume. Dressed herring, Dundee, Arbroath, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Speaking of food, as you've written, I think it was it 19 cookbooks, you said? 19, yeah. Have you got any favourite recipes right now? Oh, right now, uh, well, I always love soup. You know, we've got so many amazing soups in Scotland. But I always like to sometimes do different things with them, like Cullen skink, which everybody absolutely loves, you know, smoked haddock and milk. I never do it with cream, I think that's too rich and potatoes and onions but if you make a similar sauce using you know obviously make a, a white sauce with your usual butter and flour and milk uh, which you've the milk you've cooked the smoked haddock in and then add in some smoked haddock add in you can add in little diced potatoes if you want and then some mustard some lemon juice uh, loads of chopped parsley or chives so you've got a thickish sauce like that and then involve that either in a bridey like a four for bridey or a pie. So you've got a cullen skink pie or bridie. And the flavor of it is delicious. I, I like a nice um, crisp, short crust pastry with it. And you know, if it's a bridie, you eat it like this. If it's a pie, obviously with one hand. And it's a bit different and it's absolutely delicious. Very easy to make. That sounds delicious. And it is coming up for dinner time. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> literally here watering at the mouth. <laughs> Oh, well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. It's been lovely chatting with Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, um, honey. The Green Lady is available soon. When's it being released? It's going to be published on March the 10th. Very exciting. Okay, well, everyone keep an eye out for The Green Lady. Very good reading. Thank you so much for joining us. And sorry Thank about you. the technical issues at the beginning. <laughs> Thank you. Slanjava. Slanjava. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that interview. And if The Green Lady sounds like a book that you or someone you know would like, then be sure to keep an eye out for it on the shelves. Annie and I absolutely love making this podcast and we've got some really big things on the way. We've been very, very busy, but hopefully this busyness will soon bear the fruit of new episodes for all you listeners. If you would like to support us as we make this podcast, then you can head over to patreon.com where you can, for the price of a box of Tunnock's Tea Cakes a month, support Annie and I as we write, research, record, edit and release this podcast. But not just that, you also get access to lots of other strange little tidbits about Scotland that we dig up on our research journeys into the past. Thank you for listening along and until next time, Slanjava.